As far as I know, there are no studies that say that if you do not, that if we don't start these kids immediately on hormones when they say they want them, that they are going to commit suicide. So that is misguided. I, there, you know, there are a lot of studies that show that these youth are at high risk of suicide, you know, and there's a lot of studies that show that they're not understood and, and when they're not supported by their parents, that can lead to worse mental health outcomes. But it's not always clear what support means. Like this, it, the support is not always operationalized as providing medical intervention. You know, in fact, that's not, I don't know that it really ever is. It's more just, you know, supporting the kid with their mental health, supporting them and like, trying to understand their gender, you know, supporting them maybe in using the right name and pronouns that the kid's wanting. But in terms of like needing to intervene medically to prevent suicide and to, and doing it quickly, I know of no studies that have, have shown that. So I have a real problem with that also. Now, that being said, I will say that I have worked with young people where I am very concerned about the risk of suicide if we don't move more quickly. And, and so there are some cases where, you know, but it's all individual, you know, like if you know, after a comprehensive assessment and all of that, you know, if it seems like, you know, this, things are really going to go downhill if we don't move forward, then that may end up being what we feel like we have to do. But, um, but to do th- to make that kind of decision without an assessment to really understand all the pieces, I think is is problematic. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. The interview you're about to hear is the second part of a three-part series that I'm releasing over the course of one week. The subject is gender transition in youth. And the reason I'm dropping these episodes in such close succession is because the subject is so complex that I don't think it's possible to listen to just an hour of conversation with anyone and get anything near the whole picture. The first part of this series was a conversation with Dr. Laura Edwards Leeper, a psychologist who works with gender questioning and transitioning kids who helped found the first hospital-based youth gender clinic in the U.S. in 2007. In this part, I bring Dr. Leeper in for a conversation with two women I interviewed several months ago who are the mothers of gender-questioning kids. Those moms are using pseudonyms, going by the names of Jolene and Marie, and they live in undisclosed locations in the U.S. Dr. Leeper joined us from her office in Portland, Oregon, at 7.30 in the morning, her time, for this conversation. Dr. Laura Leeper, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This is Jolene and Marie. Hello. And we're all here together. Good morning. Marie, do you want to get started or would you like me to? I'll start. So I think for the sake of everyone, the audience and ourselves, uh, we would like for you to define the terms gender dysphoria and transgender. When we talk about those things, what are we talking about? The DSM diagnosis? Are we talking about people who self-report? Are we talking about those people who are thought to have a, you know, like in between parentheses, fixed identity? What do you mean when you talk about those terms? Okay, that's a really good question. Um, I'm happy to try to unpack that a little bit. And I, I do think that there is confusion among people, including providers even, about like the differences between those terms. Um, so gender dysphoria um, is, there's a couple different 
things that we think of when we are talking about gender dysphoria. So one is that, like you said, the DSM diagnosis, um, or, and, and so it's a diagnostic label that's used um, to diagnose individuals who experience a set number of criteria. And it's, you know, like any other diagnosis in the DSM, it's used to help in thinking about best treatment. Um, so there's, a, like I said, there's a number of criteria, but the the main um, experience that that people report or like symptom, I guess, if you want to think about it, like a, like a mental health or a medical issue is the feeling of one's body not matching with their gender that they were assigned. Um, and then, you know, often individuals who experience that desire medical interventions um, to try to align their body with their identity. Um, gender dysphoria, though, is also used as a way that people describe their experience, like their felt experience of being in the wrong body or being treated as a gender that's different from what they were assigned. So it's very common for individuals who experience gender dysphoria to um, come to a therapy session and talk about their dysphoria, talk about like how their dysphoria has been in the past week. And in that sense, it's not, we're not really talking about the diagnostic label, what we're talking about, their experience of, you know, feeling distress related to their body, not matching um, their assigned gender, assigned sex, um, but also the way people treat them. So the literature has kind of broken it down into body dysphoria and social dysphoria. Some people have both and some people have one or the other um, more or less. And so um, it's, you know, very individual. So that, that sort of, I guess, describes gender dysphoria. Transgender um, is, you know, a term that, you know, there, there's not like, one, I guess, one definition that everyone uses. I, you know, I, I, when I work with young people, it seems like, you know, everyone has sort of their own way of defining <laughs> what what transgender means it, you know most people in the in this work like professionals refer to it as like an umbrella term that sort of encompasses people who identify as gender diverse and so this is where it can get a little bit complicated because it you know it's not always used for someone who is transitioning to a different gender um, sometimes people use it like I said as an umbrella term to in- include individuals who identify as non-binary so somewhere in between male and female but other people identify non-binary as something different than being transgender and see transgender as being more of someone who is making a transition. So that one is a little bit tricky um, in terms of how lay people use it and and sort of, you know, how it's used in the kind of more scientific literature. Um, but I do want to also point out that, you know, I think one of the things you're probably wondering about is if someone who does experience gender dysphoria is necessarily trans. And that is something that I think we are coming to understand differently um, than maybe we did 10 or 15 years ago. Um, At least in my experience, I have worked with people who do experience gender dysphoria, um, but ultimately are not transgender (laughs) and ultimately don't benefit, you know, from transitioning or maybe benefit from transitioning in some ways, but not transitioning fully. 
Um, so I think that that's one area that the field really needs to um, get a better handle on and that it's problematic because I don't think all providers see it the same way. And so oftentimes providers will look at see gender dysphoria as a diagnostic label. And if someone meets the criteria for gender dysphoria per their self-report, so, you know, it's just they're coming in and saying, I experienced these things, then it's not uncommon, unfortunately, for providers to then jump to treatment and oftentimes thinking that the best treatment is always medical treatment for someone who has gender dysphoria. And that's problematic for a lot of reasons because it's not always the best treatment for someone who has gender dysphoria from what, at least from my experience, what I've um, seen. And, and also having gender dysphoria, even if the person is trans, doesn't necessarily mean that the best treatment is medical at that moment in time. So there's a lot more that goes into assessing readiness or appropriateness of medical intervention than simply meeting the diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria from my perspective, anyway. I was really happy to hear you say that sometimes people experience gender dysphoria, but are not necessarily trans. So this brings me to two concepts. There's iatrogenic uh, driven gender dysphoria, and then what a lot of us parents are calling rapid onset gender dysphoria, which I know is not a term that is necessarily accepted in a lot of professional circles, but if, if that term is not accepted, then what is it that our children are dealing with? These boys, I'm speaking as both of us are moms of boys, but it could be girls too who had no indication whatsoever of any type of gender dysphoria and who all of a sudden they go on the internet uh, autistic boys go on the internet and find the answer to why I don't fit in in your trance. And after they get involved in this cult-like uh, environment, whether it's pornography or um, hypnoporn or sissyporn or whatever it may be, or there's peers cheering them on, then they start experiencing those feelings. So you could you please talk about those two realities that we're living yeah, well, it's it, you're touching on the most complicated, I think, parts of of this field, the field and the work, and and why it's gotten um, just so much more complex in the last few years. Um, you know, and I I do think that it's it's real, it's very troubling. You know what what's happening with some youth and the impact of the internet and social media and peer influence. Um, you know, I, I think to say that that never happens, which is what some people say is, is kind of, I don't, it's just not accurate. <laughs> I mean, we kind of, we know from. That it never happens, just so we're clear, that it never happens that they would go on the internet and be sort of drawn into this. Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah. Or that there's, you know, that young people are never influenced by their peers when we, we know, you know, from all kinds of research in other areas that, uh, Teenagers are highly influenced <laughs> by their peers and want to fit in, and they're in a, in a developmental phase or stage where they are, um, you know, trying to figure their identity out and trying to understand who they are. And so, um, it makes sense that they would be, you know, searching and and then doing things that you know to try to fit in with with their peers. And so, um, so I think that you know that is something that 
that we really need to be aware of. And when we are, when we are working with young people need to tease apart, you know, if that is a factor, like if those influences are at play and, and then, you know, try to work with a young person to, to kind of peel back the layers and understand more about what's really going on. But it does, it is, it's not that simple or straightforward um, because some of these, these kids who, as you know, you just described as rapid onset, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about the use of that term, but the reality is that there have always been adolescents who came out later. We used to call it late onset, and that's kind of what I still refer to it as. But what I have come to see is that the the late onset, quote unquote, kids are not all the same. So there are some who, you know, which is, these would be the kids that, you know, I mostly would see, I don't know, 15 years ago who, you know, came out later. Maybe they, they, these are the kids who knew they were trans when they were little, but they weren't in a supportive environment at home. And so maybe they try to talk about it or express it when they were five or whatever age, but, you know, it wasn't okay. And so they basically repressed it until they got a little bit older. And then they finally, when they got to be an adolescent, they felt more courageous to come out. So those kids, I would say, aren't really late onset kids. They're just kind of late to be able to come, like they're late um, declarers. I don't know. Late late Um, announcing it. Yeah. Late at announcing it. Right. Um, So that's one group. Another group are the kids who, um, you know, didn't really have, like, weren't like saying that they were a different gender when they were little, but there maybe they did have a lot. There was a lot of evidence of it that they and their parents report. So, you know, this might be, you know, the assigned male who liked to wear his sister's clothes when, when they were little or, um, you know, always played with the girls or, you know, just did things that were kind of more typical of the, the female peers. Um, but maybe because the family was very open to, you know, kind of, raising, like maybe the parents were open to raising their kids in a kind of gender neutral sort of way. The kid never really felt like, you know, didn't really think about their gender that much. And then they got a little bit older and they kind of understood what, what gender meant and what trans meant. And, and that's when they kind of figured out that, oh, you know, this is actually, I've been experiencing this. I just didn't really realize it. And it hadn't bothered me really until I hit puberty. But often in those cases, the parents also aren't that surprised. Like they're kind of, you know, looking back, they recognize that there were sort of things that happened as the child was growing up that, you know, kind of makes sense and uh, to, you know, in terms of where the kid is at that point. But then the third group um, are the, the, the most complicated. And this is what we're, you know, seeing more and more of these days, which are the, you know, the kids who have no evidence of gender dysphoria when they're young. And, and the parents report the same thing that, you know, and the kid, the kid also often will, you know, say that they, they were perfectly happy being a boy when they were growing up. And it really wasn't until puberty or after puberty that they started to question this. And often these are the circumstances where, you know, they learn about trans identities from the internet or from peers at school. Often there are complicated mental health issues going on. Autism is, is one that, you know, is present for a lot of these kids. And so it does, you know, obviously then raise the question for that group as to what is really going on here. Is this really, you know, for, you know do we have a group of, of young people who for some reason just don't have any history at all when they're younger and 
it's coming out later. And we do know that there's a very high correlation with gender dysphoria, between gender dysphoria and autism. So it could be that, you know, there's a subset of kids who just, it just kind of something happens like biologically later in their development. But we also know from, you know, the growing number of young people who have been detransitioning or retransitioning that, um, that's not always the case. Sometimes, you know, young people are transitioning when it's really not the right thing for them. Um, and so, you know, it, we, you know, we're coming to realize that it's, it's not always straightforward. Like it seemed to be, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I, I want to actually jump in and just ask a question since we're on this ROGD concept. I know it's really, really controversial loaded uh, to, to even bring that up. Um, I think it sets a lot of people up. This is the rapid onset gender dysphoria concept. Dr. Liebert, can you explain what the methodology behind the studies that informed the ROGD concept, uh, were because part of the pushback you get from people in the trans activist community, for instance, is that those studies are basically junk science because, the, the, the kids that were studied were only those that had been sort of identified by their parents as already rapid onset, that somehow this sample group is not really representative. Can you kind of tease that out a little bit, um, what we're talking about here? Yeah, I can say a little bit about it. I mean, you know, it's basically one study and, um, you know, the methodology wasn't, it wasn't that it was horrible methodology. I mean, it, it wasn't like a randomized controlled, you know, double blind <laughs> um, study, right. you know, where everything was, um, you know, controlled for, but, um, but that within the real world research on this kind of topic, we can't always do that. So, um, you know, it was a convenient sample that was used of parents of, you know, kids who ex- had the, had this experience. Um, one of the big criticisms, and this is a valid criticism, I think, is that, you know, it was just um, looking at, at parents' perspectives. Um, so, you know, but that, again, that's often, it's not uncommon for like a preliminary study to kind of, to do something like that, you know, to look first at maybe parents and then, and then the next step would be to like assess the kids themselves. And so, you know, I don't think it should be thrown out just because of that. I think that parents' perspective is parents' perspectives are really critical in understanding all of this. So that's I think th- those are some of the main reasons that it's criticized. You know, I think the, the the number one reason is that it's not actually talking to the kids themselves; it's just getting the parents' perspective. Right. But there's other studies that you know are supportive of trans youth and trans like younger children socially transitioning that also just talk to parents you know so and people aren't all up in arms about those studies <laughs> you know so right. it's the same methodology and in fact i mean i think the other problem with the uh, original study because it she did have to go back and um, rework her. We're talking about Lisa Lippman, Dr. Lisa Lippman at Brown University, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, she had to kind of rework her conclusions and, and kind of rewrite some of it because that, that was the other problem was that some, she kind of drew some conclusions that, um, were a li- not, you couldn't, weren't quite valid. I mean, you know, based on the results. And so, but she, but I, you know, I read both of the studies and I felt like she did a good, good job of addressing the concerns. Um, and it certainly has given us some language 
to talk about what's going on. And it, you know, it's given parents um, information so that they know that they're not the only ones kind of seeing this in their kids. You know, it, it can be problematic though, I will say, because, you know, I, I do get calls from parents sometimes who are convinced that their child is a rapid onset case, you know, and when I do more of an assessment, you know, it becomes clear that, you know, that's not actually what's going on. Like, you know, this kid really has a, a deeper dysphoria that's been there for a longer period of time. And maybe the parents just weren't aware of it, but, um, but it is, it certainly is the case in some, for some kids. Jolene, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity and thank you for giving us your early morning time. I'd like for you to please elaborate on your assessment process. Um, you mentioned it a couple of times in your interview with Megan, as well as this morning. Would you be willing to speak to the type of health assessments that need to be done in children and young adults who present this way? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm definitely biased um, in the sense of feeling that assessment is really critical. Um, I think that that bias partly comes from the fact that I'm a psychologist. And so we see assessment as a very positive thing. <laughs> but just to be clear, so you're suggesting that some people do not think assessment is critical. Is that fair to say? Because that's pretty, that's an extraordinary statement, actually. Yeah, it's that's absolutely fair to say. Um, it, it, it does seem crazy to me, but just a lot of people, it's, absolutely not crazy. And they think that what I'm doing is really horrible. <laughs> People meaning other clinicians, what, like what sort of, but psychologists are not necessarily psychologists. What kinds of, I would say I've had less pushback from psychologists, but you know, more from some other mental health providers and, um, and then some medical, you know, medical providers who don't fully understand the psychological aspect of, like identity development and, you know, our... Like pediatricians? What kind of medical providers? Yeah. You, you know, any, you know, the medical... Do and this obviously is not all, but, you know, medical doctors who prescribe blockers and hormones who work with trans youth, you know, don't... Some clinics don't see the, the need for an assessment um, or to, uh, at least not a formal assessment. You know, that's part of the problem. I think people don't fully to go back to the original question, you know, don't fully understand what should go into these assessments. And, you know, I, the thing, the other piece of this is that, you know, I sometimes get identified as this person who is pushing for these assessments and, and it's sort of like my agenda, but in fact, it is, it is the standard of care per WPATH. <laughs> so, you know, it's not just me pushing for this. I mean, this is sort of what is expected according to the standards of care. Now, the current standards of care do not go into great detail in terms of what exactly needs to be looked at and done in these assessments. But the standards of care are being revised right now. And the, the new version that's going to be coming out, hopefully sometime later this year, goes into much more detail. Um, so my hope is that, and those involved in that process, is that that will help clinicians who are who are working with these young people meaning mostly the mental health providers know better what exactly they need to be doing and so basically i mean the content and then the process of these assessments and the content is really the most important piece and so that basically is just covering you know 
all of the critical areas, which include things like gender identity development, of course, um, you know, what the young person is seeking. So if the assessment is being done prior to medical intervention, you know, understanding what is it that they're wanting from the estrogen that they're they're wanting to start and do they have realistic expectations for what that's going to offer do they understand all of the like kind of side effects or things that they that may not be as welcome um, so that they can give informed consent so that's that's a big part of it but then the other big part of it is just understanding the young person holistically. So understanding like the family relationships and the dynamics, um, understanding significant events that have happened in the young person's life and how those may have influenced their identity development, understanding their social world and like their friendships through their life. And, you know, both when they were younger and currently um, their academic and school history, any you know, like early developmental stuff, any major medical problems, and then a, a big piece of it is mental health, like fully, you know, understanding and um, diagnosing any mental health concerns that are being treated or aren't being treated, you know, that haven't been identified yet um, in order to like really look at the whole child and understand what are all the pieces here and how does the gender dysphoria fit in with all of that. The other important part of the assessment is not just meeting with the child, but gathering all of this information from the parents also, um, which we would do in any assessment for a young person who is struggling with some sort of mental health or, you know, learning disability or whatever. You know, we always in, in the mental health world work with parents in addition to the child. So I'm not sure why in this particular area, there are a lot of providers out there who don't include the parents in the process. That makes no sense to me and, and really kind of makes me furious, honestly. <laughs> is that is it because there's an assumption that parents are going to be transphobic? So this is a gatekeeping mechanism. That would be the term of art often, right? I think, you know, maybe, I mean, and I think, you know, a lot of times this assessment, um, you know, so to kind of ex expand a little bit more on this uh, process. So, you know, this assessment in terms of the content, you know, that information can be gathered over the course of therapy. Um, and when it's done that way, it may it may be harder to logistically involve the parents in the process, I guess, because typically in th when we do therapy with a teenager, we don't, you know, meet with parents a whole lot. Like I, some people don't meet with parents at all. I do involve parents with the therapy process, but th most of the sessions are with the kid. But when I do a more formal assessment, it's much more structured. I have set time with the, the kids, set time with the parents. And then the other piece that I include is a series of psychological and gender measures to gather additional data. So in addition to the qualitative stuff I'm getting from the clinical interview, I'm also getting quantitative data that the from the forms that the parents and the kids fill out. And then like other psychological assessments, my approach is to then incorporate all of this into a very long report that gives, you know, just like in, you would see in like a neuropsych evaluation um, that gives all of the results and the recommendations, the, um, you know, the the history and, uh, and all of the information. And then I do a feedback session with the family and go through everything. So that's a much more formal process. And so, you know, not everyone, certainly not everyone does that. And I don't know that, that it's absolutely as critical. I mean, I think it'd be great if every kid, every 
kid who struggles with gender dysphoria could have one of these more formal assessments. But that's not realistic right now for a lot of reasons, mostly because there aren't enough providers out there to do it. And insurance companies don't, you know, reimburse well for this. It's, you know, very time um, intensive. And um, so that's another um, barrier. But but at the very least, if the information could be gathered by the mental health providers who are doing therapy with these kids, and if they could be working, involving the parents, you know, then the assessment would be more comprehensive than what I think is often happening, you know, with a lot of these young people who are then being referred to gender clinics to start medical interventions. Jolene, did you have a follow-up? Yeah, thank you for getting into that detail. I guess the biggest question that I come away from that is, is can you further describe, please, what is gender identity development? And I guess gender as a whole is another aspect of this that is not necessarily definable in a consistent way. You know, is it a social construct? Is it based on stereotypes? It's a concept that many of us have really never been asked to even consider, you know, until very recently. So I'd love for you to help me better understand what that even means, gender identity development. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think we we don't fully understand what it means. I, I, so it's a little bit hard to, to answer because, you know, I think for, for a long time, we, you know, in the fields of psychology and sociology, you know, anybody looking at identity development, we, un, we did come to understand gender as being a social construct. And so from that standpoint, you know, it's kind of like, well, then, you know, people could be comfortable and, you know, why can't people just be comfortable and, you know, you know, maybe society needs to change and be more accepting of girls doing more masculine things and boys doing more feminine things and everybody should be fine then. Um, but it's, it turns out it's not that, again, not that straightforward because there are absolutely people whose identity doesn't match their body and they, they do greatly benefit from transitioning medically. And so I think that there it is both a biological and a so- social construct situation when we're talking about ident- gender identity. Um, and we don't, we, you know, there's there's not research to help us really understand, you know, how much of each of those factors are playing in. And it may not be the same for every person. You know, there may be some biological components for some people that are stronger than the social components. Um, so uh, it's, you know, I, it's, it's very hard to answer that question, I guess, because, you know, we just, we don't have good research on it. And with the, the number of young people, you know, identifying as trans, both, you know, it, and especially, you know, if you think about the little ones, you know, who are coming out at a very young age and, you know, some of them do desist. So they, you know, and that is really important too. And I know we're not really talking about the little ones today, but that's another problem in the field is that there's some people have this like belief or assumption that if, you know, the five-year, five-year-old, you know, says they're a girl, that that's like a set in stone and that's who they're always going to be. And I think it's really critical that parents and providers and teachers and all of the adults in the, those kids' lives stay open to the possibility of whatever direction their gender goes. And 
But there certainly are little ones who, you know, know from a very young age and it really persists and it's very strong. And, you know, they transition when they get a little bit older and or they socially transition when they're younger a lot of times. And then they um, physically transition when they get older and and they do remarkably well. Um, So, you know, I think that there has to be a biological component for at least some people. Right. And I guess it's I'm probably guilty of this, of just assuming that if a five year old is saying that they're trans, they're not getting this idea from social media. So it's to be taken in a different light than you might take a 16 or 17 year old saying this kind of thing. But but you're right. But kids also change their minds about all kinds of things all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to um, ask a follow, you know, follow up question or comment to that, and um, and then go on to uh, a, another question. Um, Ristori and Steenma in their study in two thousand sixteen says that sixty one to ninety eight percent of children who say that you know they feel like they're the opposite sex uh, will desist if puberty blockers are not given, but. Brick and Carmichael 2020 and 2021 study says that 98% of those who are given puberty blockers do not desist, but go on, proceed to cross-sex hormones. So, you know, the based on what you're saying and the fact that a lot of those these children do not have the appropriate um, psychological or psychoeducational evaluations to figure out where they are or if there are other mental health conditions... Um, wouldn't a post and wait approach be the most appropriate for these children? Because obviously, if the majority who have this Stella O'Malley, for example, the, the, this uh, mental health uh, provider from Ireland talks about how between the ages, I believe it was like seven or six to 11, something like that. She absolutely, if she could have been a boy, she would have been, grew up to be a very happy woman in a heterosexual marriage with children, but we're taking away from children the opportunity to grow out or not of this mm-hmm. by stopping this earlier. And the other thing, and um, well, let me let you address this because I have another um, question. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. You know, the research is really confusing, um, but I think the most important thing to take away from all of it is that the research that has shown those kids, for the, you know, the Dutch study in particular that showed that such a high percentage of young people who were started on the blockers and then went on to hormones and then went on to surgeries and did remarkably well. Um, and, and, you know, the like large majority, I mean, I want to say like 98 or 99% of them who did start blockers did go on to hormones. Um, so people often will look at that and say, well, then, you know, if an adolescent says that they're trans, you know, then we should, you know, first of all, we should believe it because, you know, that's what, that's who they were looking at in that study. Um, but also there's concern that, well, if all of those kids went on blockers, you know, did somehow the blockers then influence them or, you know, psychologically or in some way or biologically, you know, influence them to continue on that path. But the piece that is missing that's so important is that, first of all, in that study, all of those young people, um, all of those adolescents 
had gender dysphoria in childhood. So the, so those were the ki- these are the kids who, you know, where it was really severe. Now they may not have socially transitioned because in the Netherlands at that time, that like you were talking about, that wasn't actually really encouraged for the younger kids. It was more of a wait and see approach, which was was and I think still is probably much easier for kids in other countries. <laughs> Compared to the United States, where you know we are very, you know, the male and female binary is ingrained in us, and and for young children in a way that it's just not as as strong in other places. In certain Western countries, but in Europe, mm-hmm. yes, European right, countries. yes, yeah. mm-hmm. and so you know, and I do the Dutch, I think, have like shifted some since that original study, where you know they. There certainly are kids in the Netherlands who, you know, transition when they're younger. But in that particular study, those were all those kids were all the ones who were had severe gender dysphoria from childhood, and they all went through a comprehensive assessment. So any kid who didn't meet all of the criteria for moving forward, you know, wasn't started on blockers to begin with. So it was a very specific sample, um, and that is just it's it's apples and oranges compared to the adolescents we're seeing these days. <laughs> that are coming into these clinics, you know, and, and people aren't really assessing. And well, as we've talked about, I mean, they're not assessing much of anything, but they're not assessing really, you know, or taking feeling that it's that important to, to think about like how long has this kid experienced gender dysphoria? Um, and, and so, you know, we, we are starting to, you know, treat young people, adolescents um, who, who obviously who don't have a childhood like, uh, you know, up to that point in their time, in their life, they don't have an experience gender dysphoria for the entire time. Marie, did you have a follow up or another question? Yes. Yes. So when you talked about the W path, you said that there were standards of care. And what is, sorry, what does W explain? Tell us what W path means. W path is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which is an organization that Dr. Leeper is a member of. I, I understand you're over the child and adolescent. Could you tell us what your role is in the WPATH? Yeah, so I'm the the chair of the Child and Adolescent Committee, and then which has not been super active currently because all of the energy that those of us involved in WPATH are focused on right now um, is the revision of the standards of care. And so I'm involved in the child chapter and the adolescent chapter of of the revision of the standards of care. And so the standards of care is basically just a, a very a large document um, that covers all of the recommendations for how to, you know, best treat gender diverse, really, um, people, not just children and adolescents. You know, it's like the, it covers the entire um, lifespan. And it covers things like non-binary identities, you know, as well as people who fully transition. Yes. So you said standards of care. Now, standards of care is kind of a legal sort of binding concept. Like there's standards of care for multiple things in medicine. And if a doctor is not following them, then that doctor would be referred to a medical board or could even be sued in a court of law. So when you say standards of care and doctors are saying, I'm following the standards of care, but they're not. When my son, my son with autism goes to an OBGYN and on the very first visit he is giving hormones that's clearly not following the standards of care. So 
um, I mean, what is going on here that they, they're not following what the WPATH says they need to do? So where do we report them? I mean, what body mm -hmm. is overseeing all of these violations of standards mm -hmm. of care? And actually, I just want to jump in real quick here. Marie, are you saying that your, your child made an appointment with an OBGYN and that doctor took, took them on as a patient knowing that he was biologically male? Was this an OBGYN that specialized in trans healthcare? Um, it is an OBGYN that is a regular OBGYN who sees transgender patients. I mean, right okay. now, pretty much anybody can prescribe you, um, medic, uh, you know, hormones. And the thing about it, though, is my son had had uh, therapy for a year with a mental health provider who had the wait and see approach. He knew there was autism, depression, anxiety, OCD. He had bulimia. I mean, he had all of these mental health issues. Uh, but the OBGYN didn't care about any of that. She didn't, um, his psychologist would not have recommended, um, you know, hormones mm -hmm. for this reason. He was, uh, he, was a, he was 19, he was a young adult. Mm -hmm. um, but this doctor just gave it to him. So obviously she's in violation of the standards of care. So what ha who can we go complain to and report these people to? Well, that's, so you're touching on a lot of different things here. Um, one of the big ones is the fact that you're, your child was 19. So that that changes everything, unfortunately, at this point in time. Um, because what I'm talking about in terms of, you know, recommendation for assessment and this process does not apply to adults. And at the, this moment in time, there is nothing, there's not a section in the standards of care, the WPATH standards of care, specifically for the late adolescence slash slash emerging adult stage of life. <laughs> so basically the 18 to 25 year olds, which I think is a group that, you know, kind of needs their own unique guidelines from my perspective, but th that does not exist currently. So what currently exists is just the kind of youth guidelines and then the adult guidelines. So what that OBGYN did with your child is pretty much what any adult provider would do and really wouldn't be in violation of the standards of care um, because we've really, the field really has shifted to a more, as I'm sure you are familiar with, um, informed consent model of care for adult patients. Um, now, I will say that that adult informed consent model of care is being used in some places for minors. And that is where I do ha have more of a problem because I feel like, you know, the younger the, the person is, the less appropriate that a, a informed consent, that adult informed consent model of care, you know, is and really should not be used with younger people. Is, is that used in any other medical scenario? Like, is I'm thinking maybe, like, for instance, if it, minor wants to go in and get hormonal birth control, for instance. I, can you get that without parental consent yes. under informed consent? Is yes. there, are there any other on examples? The state and yes, right. it's state dependent. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. But are there any other examples in the medical field where uh, somebody under 18 could just go to a provider and say, this is what I want and get it? Well, I mean, I... There are, depending on the state, you know, every state kind of has a different age at which 
a teenager can go in and seek medical care on their own um, without the parents being involved. And so, and so I think that that would apply to other things beyond just, you know, like birth control, contraceptive, but, but typically, I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of talking about two different things. You're talking about the young person seeing a doctor without the parents involved in it. And then you're talking about um, providers um, applying a process or, you know, like kind of ignoring the standard of care and, and just kind of deciding that they're going to approach this work in a different way. And that's what that is, I think, a problem with some providers. I think probably, hopefully not the majority, but, you know, definitely some, there are definitely some providers who just disagree with WPATH standards of care and just don't follow WPATH standards of care. Um, And because they think that it's transphobic and, you know, not affirming and, um, and to your question of, you know, well, who do you report these people to? As far as I know, I mean, I think even though, you know, it is called standards of care and they're, they're kind of like clinical guidelines, I guess, you know, they're really written more as clinical guidelines, not as like requirements. And so they're not really legally binding in that way, as far as I can tell. I mean, I think, you know, there have been lawsuits, you know, for all kinds of reasons as there, you know, are for lots of things in medicine, but, um, but I think, you know, it's just people have interpreted the standards of care differently. And again, my hope is that with the revision of the standards of care, there will be less room for people to, to do that, like that it will be more clear on how people need to be sort of understanding it and practicing. I think I just sort of wanted to like maybe summarize if I could just for a minute sort of what I've heard you say so far, which is, I guess I'm being creating a picture in my mind of, I guess, a very unregulated and difficult to know who's doing what and who believes what and who's influencing what seems to be the consensus for how to move forward. It sounds to me like we've kind of all described something that is experimental. And and to be honest, as a parent, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm, I'm terrified, number one. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've been placed in the wild, wild west. And I, um, I, I just, I wonder how a parent who, who's trying to take all of this information in, which, you know, we don't generally expect children to know themselves to the extent that they would at 25. And I think we can all look back on ourselves at perhaps even 18 and, and see a, a different version of who we may be today. And I feel very, concerned about that lack of nuance, which is often brushed aside. And I think where I'm leading to is, I just don't know how to take in this idea of affirmation only. And I guess where I really would like to to go is, is, you know, when, when we look at historically how the treatment of gender dysphoria may or may not have been effective, it did seem like waiting. And even for an adult was there were some expectations that there would be some time to really evaluate whether living in the opposite gender perhaps was really what they wanted and would assist them to have the best outcomes in life. Or I guess what I'd like to know is how did we get here to where we were? I mean, you tell me, you've been doing this since 2007, I understand. How did we get to a point where we don't feel assessment is effective for so many people and, and almost treated as a negative thing in terms of a gatekeeping apparatus versus 
a holistic approach to a whole being. I, I, the mind and the body, the mind and the body are connected. I, I find that really difficult to navigate as a parent. There's just so much contrasting information or frankly, humongous gaps. And it, it's really hard to know what is really considered the best approach. And I know you feel that in your job all the time, but how did we get here versus five years ago? There just seems to be a rapid change in so many avenues of this protocol. Well, it it is um, pretty unbelievable um, just how things have shifted so drastically. I mean, and it's um, it's been really kind of crazy for me, honestly, to sort of watch it happen <laughs> and, you know, sort of feel like, you know, I, I mean, I have definitely evolved in my approach and my practice as I've done more, you know, as I've done more of the work. I mean, I, I'm learning all the time and I try sure. really hard um, to, you know, to stay constantly check myself to make sure, you know, that I'm not being transphobic and that I'm not being unaffirming or that I'm, you know, not delaying things unnecessarily. And all of the things that I get accused of, I'm, you know, have to constantly be asking myself. Um, but, you know, I, I really feel like my, my approach has not really changed all that much over the years. I've, con- you know, I've continued to find the assessment process and in, in, in addition to therapy. So, you know, I, the, I think the gold standard really is for the young person to have both a therapist who they're working on a longer term basis to kind of really dig deep and explore everything. And then also a more formal assessment that hardly ever happens where somebody has, does, has both of those things these days. But, um, but in terms of how we got here, I mean, you know, I, I think it's a, probably a lot of, of factors. Um, you know, I, I, I really grapple with, and, you know, part of it is being a psychologist. And so I'm, I'm always sort of analyzing things, but, you know, trying to analyze what's happened in the field with, you know, other providers who, you know, I work with my colleagues and, you know, how, how, how can we see things so differently? And, you know, I really, I do think that, for the most part, and people's hearts are in the right place. I think that the, the, the large majority of providers doing this work, both the mental health providers and the medical providers, you know, genuinely want to help th- these young people, you know, and they see trans youth as being a very vulnerable, marginalized, um, misunderstood, um, you know, population. And, you know, people are enthusiastic about helping, you know, and, and wanting to like provide services. And we went for such a long period of time where there were like no clinics, you know, in the country, or at least, you know, for five or seven years, there were like hardly any clinics. And so when I was in Boston, like people were flying from all over the country um, to the clinic there because it was like the only place to go. And so when, when, you know, at that time, um, Dr. Norm Spack and I, who he was the endocrinologist who kind of started the clinic, you know, we were like in, trying to encourage more providers to do the work because it just, you know, we couldn't do all of it just, you know, in our little clinic there. So, um, so we really were trying to encourage people to not be afraid to do both the mental health part as well as the medical part. And so over time, you know, people started to get more comfortable with it and, and started to learn how to do it. And, and then, and that was felt really good initially. Um, but then it just sort of exploded where, um, clinics just started popping up everywhere. And, 
and somehow, and I think this is largely because of our, just our medical system in the United States, um, kind of seeing the medical side of things as kind of the most important, you know, and not valuing the mental health component, you know, and of course we have, you know, the stigma around mental health to begin with, but, you know, so I think what has happened is that these clinics all over the country are typically housed in either endocrinology departments or adolescent medicine departments. They're not housed in departments of psychiatry and psychology, and so it's a medical doctor, it's a it's an endocrinologist or an adolescent medicine doctor who is the medical director of the clinic. And then, you know, they're not always recognizing the importance of having a mental health person or people to do the assessment process. When Dr. Spack started the program in Boston, he learned from the Dutch sort of how they were doing things. And before he even opened the door, I mean, he knew right away, I have to have a psychologist on board to do the assessment. Like I can't do my part if I don't have a psychologist who's doing the comprehensive assessment to, to basically tell me as a medical doctor what to do. And that, that model has not continued around the country. So it's really these clinics are led by the medical providers. And because of lack of resources within the hospitals and like I think a lack of understanding of what's really involved to provide good care, the clinics are not hiring gobs of mental health providers like the Dutch. You know, the Dutch have like 20 or something mental health providers and one endocrinologist (laughs) in their clinic. You know, most of these clinics have one or two or three endocrinologists or adolescent medicine doctors and maybe a social worker, you know. And so they, what ends up happening is they rely on mental health providers in the community to do the assessments and the therapy and then to write a letter that kind of gives like support of for the young person to move forward. But there's no sort of like certificate program or anything where these mental health providers are being trained to know exactly what they should be doing in these assessments. And the medical people don't really understand fully what needs to happen. And so I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding. And, but what's, I guess what's frustrating to me is I feel like over my time in this work, doing this work, um, I've tried to explain this to people, to, to my, you know, medical and mental health colleagues. And it seems like I'm banging my head against the wall. I feel like people just, I don't know if it's that, you know, people are very concerned about long wait lists. And so everyone wants to get these kids in very quickly. Part of that is because there's a fear that if we don't start treating these young people with hormones quickly, their mental health is going to deteriorate and that they're going to become suicidal. Is that that true? I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but let's just be really clear about that because. Thank you, Megan. The data yes, yes. otherwise, but I don't want to be too, I don't want to be a blunt instrument. Where about is it. the evidence? You know where is, yeah, where, yeah, where is the, 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 we keep hearing of this great body of evidence, but we are yeah. looking at all these studies and we don't find the evidence. Find yeah. As far as I know, there are no studies that say that if you do not, that if we don't start these kids immediately on hormones when they say they want them, that they are going to commit suicide. So that is, misguided. I there you know there are a lot of studies that show that these youth are at high risk of suicide, you know, and there's a lot of studies that show that they're not understood and and when they're not they're not when they're not supported by their parents, that can lead to worse mental health outcomes, but it's not always clear what support means. Like this it, the support is not always operationalized as 
providing medical intervention. You know, in fact, that's not, I don't know that it really ever is. It's more just, you know, supporting the kid with their mental health, supporting them and like trying to understand their gender, you know, supporting them maybe in using the right name and pronouns that the kid's wanting. But in terms of like needing to intervene medically to prevent suicide and to, and doing it quickly, I know of no studies that have, have shown that. So I have a real problem with that also. Now, that being said, I will say that I have worked with young people where I am very concerned about the risk of suicide if we don't move more quickly. And and so there are some cases where, you know, but it's all individual, you know, like if you know, after a comprehensive assessment and all of that, you know, if it seems like, you know, things are really going to go downhill if we don't move forward, then that may end up being what we feel like we have to do. But um, but to do th- to make that kind of decision without an assessment to really understand all the pieces, I think is is problematic. Could I ask a question? Um, I just I want to start this with just a quick case study because I um, you know your children is really what uh, is your area. This is one uh, of the daughters of one of the moms in our group. She's now 14. And at 12, um, you know, after she heard in school that, um, you know, she could change her gender, she had autism, uh, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, generalized anxiety disorder, depression, and withdrawal as a diagnosis by a private psychologist. Um, At 12, she got put on puberty blockers this was 2018. By 2019, she had a minus 7% bone mineral density loss. Uh, by 2021, her bone mineral density loss was minus 11.5%. Her parents were so upset, you know, and freaked out about this. They're taking her off the purity blockers and everybody is pushing. Uh, this is at a very well-known New York University center for her to go on testosterone. Um, there was no documentation done until the, the mom, you know, started complaining about this. And there was no psychological assessment whatsoever. So I guess you're agreeing that medicalization is not the way to move forward. However, you could put psychologists in every center, they're all going to be more than likely following the affirmative only model. And there are states and cities where conversion therapy is banned. That's a whole other discussion we obviously don't have time for right now. But you know, as a researcher that, you know, medical or surgical interventions, we need to have outcomes and Nobody's collecting the outcomes for these children. Everybody, all these parents are being told that puberty blockers are safe, that you can pause puberty, no problems. Um, you know, and, but the, we know from the, trans- the transitioners that there can be very poor outcomes. And even we have talked to trans women and trans men who would not change their transition, but who have like no sexuality. They're not able to have normal sexual lives. So, the affirmative model seems to always lead towards a medicalization path or medicalizing path uh, with profound effects to these young people who won't have their brains develop until they're at least 25. So can you please talk about that, the uh, you know, affirmative model only being basically what most kids are going to get if mm. they get any mental health help? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Um 
I mean, and you're touching again on a, a lot of different things, you know, because like, I, I guess I wanted to first say with the blockers and I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't want to say too much about the blockers, but, um, but I, I do th- I mean, the bone health is the, one of the main concerns that medical people providing blockers or uh, prescribing blockers have. And, um, so it's, it's kind of surprises me that that wasn't monitored more closely, um, for that individual kid. Um, you know, where I see a problem, I mean, yes, there are questions as to, you know, what are the long-term effects of the blockers? There are studies being done on those and have, there have been studies on those. And so I still think we need to obviously do a lot more research and understand it better. Um, but the one of the, the kind of the, the other side of it, though, is that if, you know, and where I have con- some concerns is if a kid is assessed and they're, it's determined that they are an appropriate kid to start the blockers so that they can have more time, you know, because that's the point of the blockers, which people sometimes forget, but <laughs> to have more time to continue exploring their gender and to decide, like, how do they want to move forward? Do they want to pursue irreversible interventions? Um, from from a psychological and developmental perspective, the longer they can be on the blockers, the better, because it's just delaying them starting irreversible interventions. But some providers, the medical providers, because of the concern about bone health primarily, um, are not comfortable keeping young people on blockers for very long. So now, obviously, in a situation like you just described, if there's actual bone density you know, problems that are identified, then absolutely the kid, you know, that something needs to happen, like they need to go off the blockers. Um, But in other situations, they may be stops, you know, the blockers may stop just because the provider isn't comfortable doing, you know, prescribing them for more than a couple of years. But in, in some situations, that may mean that the kid is like 11 or 12. And so we are, we're having to make a decision about irreversible hormones with an 11 or 12 year old, which, you know, impacts fertility, you know, and obviously has irreversible effects. So from my perspective, you know, at this point in time, from what we do know about the blockers, I think that it's, it can be a very useful tool. And I get concerned when, you know, when they're not offered longer in situations where the kid psychologically is so young and um, and then we're put into this situation, a position where we have to, you know, either allow their kind of natural puberty to, to start back up, which may be just extremely distressing if it's a kid who is trans, um, or start them on hormones, you know, at a, a much younger age than what would be ideal. But what about exploratory therapy? Is that, that's the thing that, that you're maybe talking about that, but nobody else is. It seems like it's either suffer this yeah. distress on your own or put you on puberty blockers. I mean, what mm-hmm. about exploratory mm-hmm. therapy? I mean, this mm-hmm. young girl has a laundry list of issues and conditions going on. I mm-hmm. mean, and a lot of these kids, I mean, Evans and Evans are talking about that often gender dysphoria is manifested because of other mental health issues or trauma or various mm-hmm. things that are happening. Right. Um, yeah. But, but then nobody's talking about that because everybody's yeah. tracking with the affirmative model. Well, I mean, again, ideally what would be happening is that the blockers would be used 
in combination with that kind of therapy you're talking about. You know, if it's a situation where, you know, it's determined that the kid would really benefit from the blockers. I have done assessments with young people who are kind of at that pubertal stage where, you know, we're considering blockers and I have not recommended blockers. I've also worked with families where they and the child decided for all kinds of different reasons that they weren't going to do the blockers, even if the kid really did identify as trans. And ultimately, you know, when they got a little bit older, started hormone treatment, you know, they were concerned about the blockers. And so they opted to just not do that. So, but, you know, I think to your point about encouraging exploration and, you know, with or without the medical piece, um, is so important. And you're absolutely right that it's very hard to find therapists who will do that and are comfortable doing that either because I think that there's a lot of reasons. I think that none of the sort of trans 101 or even 102 or 103 (laughs) trainings tell clinicians that helping young people explore their identity is, is an appropriate intervention. You know, it, it really is, you know, I think that encouraging people to just affirm, encouraging providers to just affirm the young person's identity is sort of the message that people are hearing from most of the trainings that are out there. There's just, a, there's this idea that to not do that is being transphobic. Um, and, and people are afraid of, you know, being identified as a th- the clinician in the, th- in the community who's transphobic and unaffirming. I have that reputation among some of the people who I work with in my area. I mean, um, you know, fortunately, there, there are enough people who are seeking that sort of <laughs> approach that it's, it's not affecting me and, and, you know, my career. But I think for a lot of clinicians out there who, who want to help these young people, um, they're afraid. They're afraid of like sort of what the rep- what re- reputation they might, might get. It's also, it's not easy to, to do the work in the way that we're talking about. It's not easy as a therapist to work, to meet with a teenager who is set on this path and, you know, can sometimes get very angry and, and feel like, you know, you're not, I'm not being supportive <laughs> because I'm gently trying to ask questions. It's much easier to just support the kid, you know, and to just, you know, have, you know, them like you and have them, you know, happy with what you're saying. You know, we, we have to wind down because Dr. Leaper, I know your, your time is limited. I just want to ask a question and then maybe uh, Marie and Jolene, you can have one last question each. When you talk about these providers, these clinicians who think that you are uh, moving too slowly or that you're not, that your, your definition of affirmation is not, uh, not broad enough. Do you think that they think that a really pretty significant portion of these kids are actually trans. I mean, because it is statistically improbable that all of these kids who are declaring transgender identities will actually are actually trans. Like, let's just put it in those terms. It seems very, very unlikely. But is there um, a sort of faction of providers out there who think, well, well, actually, no, maybe there's a, a whole lot more people who are trans in this world than we previously thought. I absolutely think that, that that is what is in many providers' minds is that, you know, again, like I think that there is this under, this idea that adolescents 
fully know who they are when it comes to gender. And so if they come in and they say they're a boy, then they're a boy. Like, and just in the same way that an adult who's struggling with gender dysphoria um, might come in and, and tell the provider that they're a boy or a man. So I think that that's, you know, absolutely that's a big part of what's happening is that there is, there are differences in how we're understanding adolescent development among the medical and mental health fields. Um, and, um, and I'm not sure what to do about that other than, you know, try to help, you know, do more research and just provide, you know, education to people um, who maybe don't fully, you haven't been trained in, in development and identity development in the same way that psychologists, for example, have been. Yeah. And, and I, I do, you know, I, I do think that there are more trans people, obviously there are more trans people coming out these days. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I think, you know, just the, ex- the media exposure and all of that has allowed people to be more comfortable coming out. And, and, you know, maybe there are things biologically happening in the human species that is, you know, causing mm-hmm. more people to be trans. I don't know. I mean, these are questions we don't have answers to at this point. So um, I don't want to say that that's absolutely not possible, but we do know from seeing more people detransitioning that obviously it doesn't fit, you know, it's not right for everyone. Not, and, and you know, not everyone who says they're trans ultimately is trans. So. Right. And you don't have evidence that a, a lot of the detransitioners are detransitioning because of being rejected by their families or, or transphobia. I mean, cause no. that is an argument that you hear. If anything, is- I would think that it would be really hard to detransition because you're excommunicated from trans community. Yes, it is. Yes. I think that that absolutely is true. And I am sure that there are people who do detransition for the, you know, for that reason that they feel pressured by their family or whatever, you know, the case may be, but, um, but absolutely that is not all that's going on, which some people would claim is the case. And, you know, that's just not that if you listen to the people's stories, I mean, unless you just are going to not believe their experience. (laughs) Um, I don't think we can claim that. Yeah. Well, we just have a few more minutes, but um, I'll let I'll let you guys have the last word, the last question. Um, I don't know, whichever one of you wants to go first. I, I'll jump in. I guess one. There's so many things we didn't get to touch on, of course, and so thank you so much again for your precious time. Um, one of the areas that seems to continue to come up is that you know we've sort of, I guess, my way of seeing it is we've conflated a bit of gender with sexuality. And it does seem that there is a high percentage of both transitioned and detransitioners who've said that they recognize that part of the process of their gender identity development was entangled with their internalized homophobia or just their own development of sexuality. And I I guess it could be argued in some ways, and maybe we can give Iran as an example, but that, um, you know, wouldn't transitioning a gay person to become straight a form of conversion therapy, it, it feels like there's this sexuality component that we haven't touched on that seems very relevant in the development of this 18 to 25 cohort, especially, and, and I don't know how we get to where we need to go to untangle it all, but this conflation is really creating, you know, some very unique responses to this sharp increase in people presenting with the trans identity, because of course, we all know that we've made some really poor assessments, and particularly 
in the form of conversion therapy for gay people in the past. And no one wants to repeat that. I, I just wonder, you know, how that is to be addressed in a way that actually helps all of us, because it seems like internalized homophobia is, is going to continue to become a more pressing part of this story. And I just find it fascinating that the LGB and the T are really even in the same alphabet sometimes, because they do seem to be struggling to figure out where they fit and where they don't. Yeah. And just to be clear, you're talking about Iran having a very uh, high number of uh, transgender surgeries. They, I don't know if it's the number one. I don't know if they lead globally, but there's a lot of it because you can't be gay there. So right, I guess who I understood gay, it as if you yes. want to be, if you're, if you, you know, proclaim to be gay, for instance, in that country, my understanding is that's an, an appropriate way to right. address that. Which makes no sense uh, on any so level. So little of but, this but, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Anyway, so Dr. Leifert, do you have thoughts there? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess just quickly to say, I would say that you're absolutely right that there is a lot of overlap and it gets um, very intertwined, like the gender and the sexuality piece and the internalized homophobia and all of that. And so I, I don't know if I, get, I don't think that I mentioned this, but, you know, I think that that's another that's another really important part of both therapy and assessment, you know, with young people is to understand where are they at with their sexual orientation, identity development, and, um, and to try to dig into that and understand, you know, what their beliefs and feelings are around, you know, who they're attracted to and, and, you know, living as a boy or as a girl and, and how that changes, you know, their feelings about that. Um, it, it's very complicated and, and it, that it's definitely one of the harder things, I think, especially for teenagers, you know, to tease apart, which I think is why it's often slightly older, you know, kind of young adults who come to realize, oh, you know, this, this gender thing, it actually was more about sexual orientation, um, because, you know, they're a little bit older, they have a little more life experience and, and then they can kind of, you know, figure that out a little bit better. Which to me is just another reason to say, hey, let's give this some time to explore as, as you are advocating as well. Um, and my last mm -hmm. question or comment, I guess, and then I'll, I'll leave it to you, Marie, is, uh, you know, when this first kind of came into my world, I, I guess, to be honest, the paradigm itself really is a challenge for me. I, I, I certainly appreciate your experience, but I'm just curious, the goal in affirmation only is to validate in many cases, you know, this disconnect. I, I'm just wondering if we look historically back, has anyone the protocol ever been to instead of affirm to actually say, well, let's affirm your natal sex? And, and I'm not necessarily saying this is the right thing, but I, I guess my very first confusion from the beginning has been, but why isn't the goal to find peace in your natal body? Mm -hmm. Like, why mm -hmm. is the goal to affirm this message that your body and your brain are wrong. Like, I, mm -hmm. I don't know how a person ever gets healthy from that being their, their understanding of themselves. Like I, I just, the whole paradigm of it, I can't wrap my head around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you comment on why the goal isn't to find peace, like in anorexia or other mm -hmm. mental health mm -hmm. and your other mm -hmm. mental health protocols all seem to follow this idea that that would be the ultimate. Like we don't right. have to be on any kind of, you know, synthetic hormones for the duration of our life versus right. I, I don't understand. I, I just don't get it. And become medical patients. They become medical patients for life. For life. Why? Mm -hmm. Is that the way we're doing this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's because, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago, the, the young people who are coming forward were just a very different population than what we're seeing now. And so, you know, and, and again, all of those young people were getting comprehensive assessments to sure. ensure that, you know, this really is what's going on. Like this really, there really are no other options, you know, for this person. Like w- they've kind of tried other things and like, they're just, it's, you know, this is going to be the best thing for them. What were those um, things? Like, what did they actually try? Well, I mean, yeah. these days I would say, you know, what I try to do with, with people is really help them understand like and talk about, you know, why when did they start feeling uncomfortable, you know, being a girl or a boy and mm-hmm. what were the messages that they were given or you know, what ex- what are the posi- the pros and the cons of living as a boy versus living as a girl and what was their life experience, you know, as the gender that they were assigned at birth and when did they start to feel like it wasn't right? You know, what were all the factors going on in their life and the different messages that they were receiving so that they can then try to understand, like, is this more about, you know, not fitting in with the girls because I, you know, because there's like undiagnosed autism or, you know, whatever, whatever kinds of other things might have been playing in for, for the individual kid. I mean, every case is so different. You know, there's every, it's like, you know, I just don't know how anyone can't, you know, can think about approaching this work in a non-individualized way, you know, I think. Um, and so, so in my mind, you know, doing that exploration, you know, for a period of time, which kind of does touch on what you're talking about, like exploring, like, well, what would it be like to, to live as a boy who's just more sensitive and is like more feminine in some ways, the way society kind of, you know, defines that. Um, And what would that be like for you? And, and who do you know, like what other boys and men do you know in your life who are like that, that you can, that we can kind of talk about and think about like what, what is life for them to to live in that way? Um, So I think you know, in my mind, that sort of therapy is, is really important. Um, and, you know, and it, it's hard when, you know, you're doing that, that therapy and the young person is still being like, is still on the internet constantly. <laughs> and there are all these other influencing factors that, you know, can't just eliminate. Um, so that does, I think, make it more difficult, but but even if that is happening, you know, if the young person is willing to engage in that process, I think it it can it can result in them either coming to realize that, OK, maybe transitioning is not what I need or it may just help them realize that, you know, I've I've dug deep into this and I'm still feeling the same way. And, you know, I've, I've given this a lot of thought and I recognize that this is going to be, you know, there are going to be irreversible interventions and possibly lifelong, you know, medical treatment if that's what they all, if they decide to do it their entire life. Um, and, and so then making as much of an informed decision as they absolutely possibly can given their age, you know, which is not going to be as informed as it's going to be for like a 25 or 35 year old, just simply because of their brain development. But, um, but that's all, that's my goal. My goal is to help the young person and the family, the parents make the most informed decision possible. Um, um, but it's, it is not easy. It's absolutely not easy work. (laughs) Um, so again, I don't know if that's part of the reason more people, you know, just, you know, aren't, aren't approaching it that way. Well, 
Thank you so much, Thank Dr. You. Laura Edwards-Lieber and Marie and Jolene. Thank, Thank you, you, Megan. I know you've given me a lot of time, all of you. We've <laughs> spent hours together now, so um, I yes. really appreciate it. Thank you. It. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's I, I appreciate having the opportunity to talk about these things. That was my conversation with Dr. Laura Edwards-Leeper and two moms going by the names Jolene and Marie. You can hear their initial interview with me on the July 4th, 2021 edition of this podcast. The third and final installment of this series, at least for the week, will drop in a few days and will be a conversation with the journalist Lisa Selen-Davis, who talks about the larger cultural picture when it comes to this subject and how our limited notions of gender are playing into it. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. To get ad-free versions of this show, please support it at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. There is a growing community of listeners there, including a group that meets regularly to discuss individual episodes. To learn about the show just in general, its website is theunspeakablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I am Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.